0: The Laws of War Podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. It's a podcast that hopes to provide conversations on hot topics and debates that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also to help make these areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. If you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to listen to episode one in which I talk more about the purposes and scope of the podcast and explain the basic scope of the different legal regimes and so lay the foundation for most of the issues we discussed through the various episodes. And if you're not new to the podcast and you're finding it enjoyable or helpful, please do spread the word to your friends, colleagues, students, and consider posting a review or a plug on social media. Our guest today is Judge Chile Ibo Osuji, who recently completed his term as president of the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Judge Ibo Osuji was a judge on the ICC for some 10 years and was president of the court for the last three of those years. Prior to that, he was a legal advisor to the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, and before that, was a prosecutor at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. Originally from Nigeria, Dr. Ibo Osuji is a Canadian, and he practiced law in Toronto before embarking on his international career. In fact, we may have been in practice at the same time about a block apart in Toronto. And indeed, Dr. Iwo Osuji is now returning to Toronto to take up a position at Toronto's new law school, the Lincoln Alexander School of Law at Ryerson University. In our discussion today, Judge Iwo Osuji provides some reflections on his role in the development of the ICC and responds to some of the critiques of the court. We then turn to discuss a specific issue that was raised in the Nataganda case. Specifically, whether the term directing an attack in the provision of the Rome Statute that covers war crimes should be limited in time to just the duration of actual hostilities, or it could also extend to periods of occupation and consolidation after the immediate hostilities are over. And as well, whether it had the same meaning as directing an attack in the provision that governed crimes against humanity. There was a huge debate about this before and after the appeal, in criticism of Judge Ibo Suji's concurring decision in particular. This debate revolved around questions of whether the Rome Statute preserved differences between so-called Hague law and Geneva law, and whether the Rome Statute was a source of law or merely an enforcement mechanism for existing law, and indeed broader questions about treaty interpretation and the accessibility and intelligibility of law as an aspect of the rule of law. So while Nataganda himself was convicted on other crimes and was going to prison for a very long time regardless, this one issue excited a great deal of controversy and interest in the international criminal law and IHL worlds. And in the course of our discussion, I put to Judge Ibo Osuji many of the criticisms that were raised in this debate, and I think you will all find that his discussion of the issue is both fascinating and illuminating. And for those interested, we have posted on the website not only the decisions of the trial and appellate chamber, but some of the blog posts that debated the issue before and after the appeal. One note of regret in advance, I'm afraid the sound quality of the Zoom recording of Judge Ibo Osuji is rather poor in parts, and we were not able to entirely fix that in the editing. So apologies for that in advance. So with that, let us get to the conversation. Well, Judge Ibo Osuji, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to have you here, sir. Thank you very much, Professor. You've recently stepped down as judge and president of the International Criminal Court. I understand you were a judge for approximately 10 years and president for three years. And it just so happens that we are speaking on the very day that the new prosecutor of the ICC is being sworn in. And so before we get to the legal issues that we're going to grapple with today, it seems fitting to ask you if you might share some reflections on your time on the court, and particularly perhaps in light of some of the criticisms of the court, not only from those that are obviously hostile to it, but also from some of the champions of the court and international institutions. What are your thoughts on the court's past and future role and whether it has been or will live up to its promise, so to speak? Thank you very much, Professor
1: Martin. It's an honor to be on your show, a privilege to be here, and to be able to deal with all those questions you've raised. My time on the court, as you know, was the fourth president of the court as president number four. So the court is, uh, comparatively speaking, still young. And I happened to be at the court at the time when a lot of these issues needed to be addressed. Uh, When I was president of the court, I made it a deliberate objective to address some of those difficult issues myself. Uh, and not take things down the road for somebody else to deal with later. There are issues that these are teething problems that happen there. In addition to teething problems, these are institutional uh, difficulties which every, every human institution in the world uh, would have. But I felt that uh, it didn't help to skirt around those issues, try and sidestep them safely and hoping that it should be somebody else's problem to deal with. No, that wasn't why I went in there specifically to confront some of those difficult issues. The issues I knew were those were punching me left, I think, center. and there were some kind of punching that occurred. <laughs> but uh, it was for a good cause, and I thought we needed to deal with that. So um, in, in that sense, it was uh, suddenly challenging again. That was... No surprise there at all. I, I asked for it right. by accepting the mandate, not only accepting the mandate, but also going about it in the deliberate where I thought we should go about things, taking on those difficult issues. Uh, that raised challenges or the mandate right there. But also I find uh, my experience of found it um, ultimately uh, rewarding in the sense that those issues had to be dealt with a lot of them, are we could, and uh, the remaining pieces um, taken up by um, my successors in office. And there's a very, very able uh, president of the court now, a very good man who is also uh, very conscientious about what needs to be done.
0: Right, and of course, one of the controversies that marked your tenure was the decision of the appellate chamber last year on the decision regarding the authority of the prosecutor to investigate possible war crimes and crimes against humanity in Afghanistan. This was, of course, quite controversial. It predictably provoked a a rather nasty reaction from the Trump administration in the United States. But the decision, as I understand it, arguably corrected the understanding of the, the scope of the prosecutor's authority and the standard that the trial chamber is limited to in approving or rejecting the prosecutor's request to initiate an investigation. But it also perhaps answered some of the concerns that the court was disproportionately focused on African conflicts and reluctant to investigate the acts of major powers. You, know, you weren't one of the judges on the panel in that decision. But do you have some thoughts on the importance and significance of that decision for the way forward for the court?
1: Thank you very much. First of all, I was not one of the judges on the panel. Uh, I stepped aside right. on that case for a specific reason. This specific reason was that however it went. Whichever way the appeals chamber decided it, it was bound to provoke a storm that required somebody to um, deal with at the diplomatic level and maybe being the, uh, the highest diplomatic officer of the court. I felt that there were 18 judges, including myself, and there was no shortage of judges to step in and replace one judge. So that would have been on the case. But there were no 18 uh, chief diplomats of the court. That was only one. That was me. Right. So that was one case where I felt that my service to the court was better done with me stepping aside and dealing with a diplomatic fallout that needed to happen to explain the judgment, defend it, if it needed to be defended, than for me to be in it. And then when all these storms started coming in that we nobody to uh, play the other role. But let me put it this way: had I been on the panel, the decision the appeal chamber reached would not have been different. It would have been the same uh, decision. I might have issued a separate opinion, which may not have criticized, a separate opinion that would have basically shored up the the decision itself, not a separate opinion that would take away from me now. You know, it's a very concurring opinion to say in addition to what we said in general, I also believe that the decision was correct, and here is additional reasons why. That is what would have happened if I had been in the case. So right. um, the point is to say, I strongly believe that the appeals to arrived at the right, the right judgment in that case. And on that point, it's interesting the way you approach that question and it was the correct way, the way you approached it. You see, oftentimes people, what they put up front was quote-unquote criticisms uh, the court had faced. Um, somehow people don't pause to acknowledge the good work that God has been doing. And that was one such instance of very good work done. That judgment was issued when the judges themselves, mm-hmm. the field judges, had directly above them. this sort of democracy that the Trump administration was wielding, direct threat mm-hmm. telling them, you issue this judgment that, in, in a way, we don't like. We will do all sorts of nasty things to you. That was a direct threat. Right. Despite that threat, the judges answer so the questions posed to them according to their consciences, in a way that no doubt did not please the administration at the time. So that people don't talk enough about those kinds of positives and there are very, very many of them. Uh, for instance, people, I'm sure you'll get to some, some point, people will, well, they quitting people. Right. Somehow, that is seen as a criticism, sometimes amazingly even from lawyers, international lawyers. I, I do understand that, but perhaps I don't want to preempt that. I I suspect you might want to take up that question down the line.
0: Well, I mean, I share your bewilderment on that point. Again, I'm not an international criminal lawyer, and so I haven't been as immersed in the work of the ICC. But from afar bewildered me to see the criticism of the court on that. this idea that they're just acquitting too many people and that somehow an acquittal is a failure of the court strikes me as just a bizarre criticism, particularly when it's coming, as you say, from lawyers. I mean, if anything, it should be taken as a sign of the integrity of the court, that that this is justice operating the way it should. We don't want a kangaroo court that convicts everyone that's brought before it, surely.
1: Exactly. So that's basically how I've seen it. I have never been apologetic about that at all. I tell people, look, I have been a defense lawyer in my time. I've also been a prosecution counsel. The lack of integrity of a court of law is one that when the evidence is not there to meet the standard of proof beyond the reasonable doubt, the court must have quit. And one of the things, Professor, that doesn't get talked about enough even in the jurisprudence of the the court, is the meaning of that concept. You don't see a lot of discussion about it in international criminal law, especially from the perspective of the work of the ICC. What does proof beyond reasonable doubt really, really mean? Mm -hmm. There is not too much discussion on that subject, not even in the case law of the ICC itself, People will look at Article 66, I believe, of the Rome Statute that says that the court must not acquit unless the um, evidence meets the standard of proof of reasonable doubt. They mention it in passing. and keep going. <laughs> Oftentimes, I worry that that is missed and people think of it in terms of the standard of proof of likelihood that the theory of the prosecution is correct. Or that perhaps probability, I think, the evidence to, to be the proof. That's what you see. Whereas the standard of proof, you're always, it's not that at all. It doesn't mean that in the prosecution came to court with uh, a theory that somebody sitting back in an armchair would say, well, that's, this, this is a sensible theory of the case vis a vis the evidence. Or, yes, it's likely that this person this crime, or it is probable that this person committed this crime, therefore gets uh, convicted. That's the worry. That may be what's going on. But when you now induce things down to the meaning of standard of proof beyond reasonable doubt, what well, it means, you have to be sure, you have to be certain that you are sure. That's how the British count it. Variations of that, even in the Canadian system, it is stressed that if you think that the evidence meets the standard of probability of guilt, you must acquit. That is the instruction to the jury. Canadian judges give them. It is about being sure that this person is guilty. So we haven't had that discussion, and then
0: perhaps that needs to happen. Right. So I guess to be as fair as possible to the criticisms that the court is acquitting too many, underlying that criticism may be the sense that the prosecutor is not doing a good enough job in building the cases, or that, as you say, finding the evidence, developing the evidence, developing the arguments. I mean, do you think that there is anything to those criticisms? Absolutely not. I do not
1: at all. Think the prosecutor needs to be blamed for not doing good enough job. If I were the prosecutor, my approach would be: I would approach my job from a different perspective. I will approach it from this perspective. My job as a prosecutor, I would tell the world. I don't remember I used to be one, not that level. Where I was, you know, prosecution counsel in the courtroom. Right. But my approach to it. That job has always been what you and I know from the Canadian case law, King versus Boucher, or Boucher, you would say in English. that say the job of the prosecutor is not to win cases, right? That is not the job of the prosecutor. You're not there to win cases. You're there to prosecute with robustness, right, with integrity, and then marshal the evidence robustly resolutely, and then leave it to the judges to decide. And whatever the judges decide after you've done your job, you say as the court pleases, and you leave it at that. The essence of the work of the court, in my view, this stress really is on accountability, not on conviction, right? The idea is that no one should be above the law, however high. The accused person or suspect might be; uh, they have to be brought before impartial judges, independent judges, to render account of their conduct. That is accountability of it, right? And that is the value of the court, as opposed to the time before the court, before the error that brought on this court before the early 1990s, rather when the international community decided to. Um, start laying emphasis on accountability. For all time, if you were the head hunter of your country or your kingdom, you could do what you wanted to people who were within your jurisdiction, your political jurisdiction, and nobody dared ask you any question. They will know where to ask you that question. Got away with it. Right. But now the new regime is that anyone who does those nasty things should be prepared to explain themselves somewhere. That is accountability, render account. If in rendering that account, their explanation makes sense or the evidence is not established, the judges will say, sorry, we cannot convict, we must acquit. And that is serving the purpose of the court, forcing people to render account as opposed to when no, no, no such thing possible. So that is where the emphasis will lay. I practice law in, in Toronto uh, as a defense counsel. Now, when I was in practice, I don't know if you have changed this rule now, there was an obligation in domestic abuse cases, say domestic abuse, you know, sexual mm-hmm. or physical violence. Whenever there was such suspicion in a case or a complaint linked to the police, In Ontario, the Crown or the prosecutor was required to take the case to
0: court.
1: The prosecution had no discretion to say, well, we looked into this thing, Uh, there is no evidence to support the fact. No, the case must go to the court and let it be the judges that decide whether or not the case was up to snuff. So that was one instance where. You could not be saying prosecutors are two cases to the court in those kinds of cases. If the case was, you know, uh, the defendant was acquitted, the prosecution had failed. Right. I would bring that kind of uh, attitude to the work of international prosecution in the sense that where there is this, uh, this bad conduct and the evidence shows probable cause, probable cause, and that's a much lower standard than some of the reasonable doubt. The prosecution needs to take that case to court. Let the world see transparently how that matter is resolved. So it's not about somebody saying the prosecutor refused to take a case to court for X, Y, Z reason or took a case to court for X, Y, Z reason. Now, meet a certain minimum threshold, notwithstanding that it doesn't meet the standard of proof beyond reasonable doubt, take it to court and let the world see how that is resolved. So that is how I would Approaches. So I would not at all criticize the prosecutor because there are some convictions and there are some acquittals. So everyone wants only the story of convictions and not the, not the acquittals. Interesting.
0: Well, we should turn to the case uh, that we want to spend most of our time on. Uh, and this is the appeal chamber decision in the case of Bosco Nataganda, a leader of a non state actor, an armed group operating in the Second Congo War. You were one of the judges on the panel in this case, and you wrote a long concurring opinion that attracted considerable attention and quite a bit of debate. In fact, the issue that received a great deal of attention both before and after the appeal decision was handed down was the prosecutor's appeal of the trial chamber's decision not to convict uh, on charges against Nataganda for the specific war crime under Article 82e4 of the Rome Statute of, and I quote, intentionally directing attacks against, among other things, buildings dedicated to religion or hospitals and places where the sick and wounded are collected. Now the charges related to violence that was done to a church and a hospital in a so-called ratissage operation after the forces commanded by Nataganda had attacked and taken a town, and the trial chamber had held that the term attack in Article 82e4 is limited to violence that is done in the context of hostilities. And could not be extended to violence that occurs after hostilities cease, and one side is in occupation and control of the territory in which the fighting had occurred. The consolidation phase, if you will. The prosecutor appealed this, arguing that attack in this provision should not be understood so narrowly, but should extend to all violence against the protected property in the context of armed conflict. And in this case, just so everyone is clear, we're talking about a non-international armed conflict. Uh, and as we'll come back to, even before the appeal, there was considerable debate and alarm over the implications of this argument. And your judgment on this point was precisely what people were alarmed about. So let's dig into that. And perhaps we can begin with just an overview of your decision and the reasons you gave for coming to your interpretation of the term attack in that provision.
1: <laughs> well, thank you
0: very much.
1: way, anyway, I want to profess my romance by saying I'm not one of those judges who believe that well, once a judge has rendered the judgment, he should not explain himself. That I do not fall by that. I do believe that the judges owe the public an obligation to make them understand what they're doing. So especially when judges do, it's not what people are expected to see or hear. Right. So it's part of it, helping people to understand the discipline and the work that we do. In terms of an overview, I thought the debate was unfortunate, but it struck me that there was a certain disembodied understanding of international humanitarian law that I saw in the debate on that issue. Right. I don't know whether you've ever seen the Kamite. you know, these tents on the African civilians, so you see them there, building these huge, and, 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 the and all that. If you pull down the head of this tabai, right? so the head will be severed from the body, and then the head will be over there, still munching away, regardless right? <laughs> of when the body is on the other side. So that's what you tend to see, those who have a certain view of the meaning of a time. That meaning I saw struck me as disembodied from the, the entire purpose of international humanitarian law when, you know, the leaders of the world decided, starting in 1856 onward, when they, you know, the declaration uh, of Paris and all the way to St. Petersburg, the declaration of 1868, down to the the first, you know, Hay Peace Conference of 1899 and other instruments in between. The purpose of IHR was always to constrain the military. So in order to protect civilian population and in order to protect civilian objects from the operation of war, or the effects of war, that is the purpose and you see that also uh, captured in the basic rule. Even titled as such, in Article 48 of the Additional Protocol One mm-hmm. to the Geneva Conventions of 1949, specifically saying the combatants or belligerents shall at all times, and this is in quote, at all times observe distinction or distinguish between civilians and combatants, and between civilian objects and military objectives at all times. Why? For purposes, quote-unquote now, of respecting or protecting the civilian population or civilian objects from, quote again, from operations, from military operations, operations. Now, so operation, military operations is a broad concept. In my view, that is the essence of international humanitarian law, falls you down right there. Mm-hmm. And you see part two of the fourth Geneva Convention 1949, again, elaborate that concept, protect civilians from the ravages or avoidable incidences of war. Now, once you see that as a purpose of IHR, of course there are also protection of um, soldiers and all that, but the most vulnerable people in armed conflict are the civilian population and civilian objects. Now, if once one understands that that is the empire, that humanitarian imperative is in you know, entire purpose of IHL, and not to make war easier for soldiers, to make it more convenient for the military. You begin to see how strange the debate got, as it did in the case we were doing such, uh, you would then say, well, uh, you see the military units or battalions, or whatever, that have taken over a certain area, and having done that, they occupied hospitals and you know attacked patients in the hospitals and shot it up. That's not an attack because it did not happen as part of when this was moving in to occupy the place. I mean, I just could not accept that view of IHL.
0: Right, and so we can get into a little bit more of the the technical aspects, but before we do, I mean, I think. Related to how you've just explained this, you know, one got a strong sense in reading some of the amicus briefs and some of the essays that appeared both before and after the appeal, that many people, and I think a lot of them were former military lawyers, were acutely concerned about maintaining some distinction between so-called Hague law and Geneva law. And there was this sort of sense that, oh, attack, as it's referred to or implemented, in Article 82E4 of the Rome Statute is a part of Hague law, and that you have somehow conflated it with Geneva law in the way that you've interpreted it. And one gets the impression from your judgment, and I think from your comments just now, that you are not at all convinced that one should maintain this distinction.
1: Absolutely
0: not. That's let me be blunt about that. <laughs>
1: Uh, uh, how could you have guys? <laughs> <Not interested laughs> by that. Okay, look, let, let's be clear here, as clear as I can possibly be. <laughs> the law is for the people. The law is not for lawyers. The lawyers do not have the right to say, hang on, let's try and see how we can make law more attain so that the honorary person who's, who are supposed to govern themselves according to this law will be lost trying to figure out what the law is trying to tell them. That, in my view, is not what either or any aspect of law is about. So the idea is: how can we make law more readily understandable to the average person whose conduct is regulated precisely by that law? Now, when you begin to make that distinction between the Hague law and the Geneva law, I don't know where how people, quite frankly, got on to that sort of train of mindset to be able to assign it so boldly. The IHL has been progressively uh, developing along the way, again, for purposes of regulating armed conflict, making the fighting of was something I should not impose avoidable burden on the most vulnerable victims of such an enterprise, anthropo- civilian population. Right. Now, in doing that, the people who contacts are uh, called into question are not the military lawyers. Who are at headquarters or who are know, in the background, you know, when there's a doubt, somebody goes and has a question and then they get into this arcane discussion that would make the heads of their commanders swim. Oftentimes you hear commanders complaining that the military lawyers confuse them. <laughs> I mean, that is a complaint you hear. When they get confused, some of the consequences of that becomes People just take a decision on what they believe uh, they should do. Frustrated military commanders to say, okay, this is what we're going to do. Forget uh, Let's not have that uh, lawyer who's going to confuse us with all this stuff. Let's do what makes sense there. And what makes sense is usually what's more convenient for the military. Right. Whereas if you made it simpler, simplified it, it becomes easier to understand that I cannot accept at all that you're going to tell a military commander, well, or a soldier, that if you are in the context of an armed conflict or you're fighting a war, there are two regimes of international law you have to worry about. One is one that's called crimes against humanity and that's acquired a certain definition over the years, over usage. So that regime operates both in peacetime and in wartime. So as you're fighting your war, you also have to be careful about that regime of law. And there's another regime of law that guides us more traditionally, time immemorial, that is the law of war. That also operates when you're fighting a war. So there are two regimes: crimes against humanity, war crimes, and then you tell that soldier, well, there's something you will do, and then it comes to the equation of an attack. So that thing you've done is an attack in terms of crimes against humanity. But if it's war crime, it is not an attack. And I'm saying, okay, even that alone is enough to make people say, let's stop and think, is this what we want to be telling
0: private Bumble in the field? (laughs) Right. And to be fair, I mean, I guess it's even more complicated, at least from the critics' perspective, because they're saying not only is there crimes against humanity and war crimes, but within the context of war crimes, there's so-called Hague law and so-called Geneva law. And there's a distinction between the two. So I'm going to circle back to the war crimes and crimes against humanity distinction in a moment. But before we leave the Hague law, Geneva law distinction, one aspect of the criticism, and this was a criticism even before the appeal decision was handed down, it was sort of unpacking the prosecution's arguments in advance of the appeal, was this idea that if attack is defined as the prosecutor argued and as you you accepted in your decision, that it makes other charges in article 8 of the Rome statute redundant so it seems to that this definition of attack extending it beyond the immediate conduct of hostilities to the ratissage operations and operations of consolidation after hostilities have arguably ended will then swallow and make redundant prohibitions against pillaging, destruction and removal of objects, and so forth. And that because it makes those provisions redundant, that can't be the right interpretation of the statute. What are your thoughts on that?
1: And, uh, yes, we also doubted that, uh, maybe if not directly, that was definitely on the mind. We tried uh, in the case to deal with that in the sense, for instance, of saying you have to bring um, common sense to bear. It's one thing to say, okay, what is the definition of attack? You can have that definition, but then say, well, notwithstanding that this is the definition, right? But because there are some specific provisions that guide the contact, right? So those specific provisions become more specific. I mean, in law, we know how to deal with that, you know, specialibus, generalibus, derogating, all that. So when you have a general and there's some specific regime, then you abandon this uh, general regime and use the specific regime to solve the problem. But that doesn't discount the importance of the general regime for the sake of those instances where you have no other special regime that should guide conduct. So that is the way to look at that. and look, let's give attack the meaning it should have. After all, Article 31 of the Geneva, this is the uh, Geneva Convention that we all love, nobody detracts from that, of the law of treaty, says uh, treaties are to given their natural meaning, laws are given their natural meaning with special regard to the object and purpose right. of the treaty. So if you have the objective purpose of the treaty is to protect vulnerable people from you know, avoidable uh, consequences of effects of war, that is the objective purpose. Uh, you are required to give a uh, specific meaning. The word attack has, has a meaning, a natural meaning. And that natural meaning is actually consistent with the definition Of attack in Article 49 of Additional Protocol 1. And that definition is an an attack, or attacks are acts of violence against an adversary. Now, of course, it's an act of violence, whether committed in offense or defense against an adversary. But then the emphasis on whether committed in offense or defense is to deal with some debate that have been raging no longer, well, attack can only be committed in offense, and the, the additional protocol one makes it don't know. So even if you're defending where you are. So you can also be attacking while you're doing uh, defensive work, right. which one may say, the side may well be bad. The point then becomes, if you give attack that meaning of act of violence, and then on what basis does one come to then subtract from that definition on the basis of, well, we have to maintain a distinction between the Hague and Geneva law. Where does do the laws of IHL say that? The states parties, if that's what they wanted to do, then they should say so. That judges, as you apply IHL, make sure that you do not conflict the Hague law and the Geneva law. And we'll operate on that basis, but. To the extent that I do not have that instruction, right. I have to apply it to law interpreted in the way that makes sense in light of ordinary meaning of terms and in light of object and purpose of the provision or the treaty in question.
0: So then let's circle back to this issue of attack as it's used in Article 8, which defines war crimes, which are crimes under IHL. In law of armed conflict, and attack as it's used in Article 7 of the Rome Statute, which is crimes against humanity. And as you say, these are two different legal regimes. The same term attack is used in both. And in your judgment, you take the position, as you just articulated, that, well, the term attack has to be understood as meaning the same thing in both regimes and in Article 8 as in Article 7. And this, of course, led to an uproar. A lot of military lawyers and and, uh, lawyers specializing in IHL thought that you could not define and interpret the term attack in Article 8 and Article 7 of the Rome Statute as meaning the same thing. So, let's unpack that. So, what your question? Yeah. Well, so... I say say you do. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But is there anything, presumably you don't think there is, but I guess we could unpack why you don't think there is any basis for this argument that crimes against humanity a different legal regime. The crimes are defined quite differently. As you point out, crimes against humanity can occur outside of armed conflict. Uh, and therefore that the term attack as it's used in the context of crimes against humanity may have different contours, different scope than the concept of attack in the context of war crimes under IHL and the Geneva Conventions. Well agree.
1: As I say the meaning, I do not see the, in the um Article 7, which deals with front against humanity. So the definition is um, directed against a civilian population. And the, in IHL, or the, um, the, the Article 8 of the Rome Statute, we are talking about directing attack against civilian populations, civilian objects. So, I do not know how we begin to say, "Well, uh, to direct an attack is different from directing an attack. That's right there in terms of use of language. Uh, it's a difficult proposition to, to accept. Now. It does not mean that when you charge someone under Article 8, you automatically have a conviction for article certain so offense. No, I'm only saying that the actual conduct we are talking about, right? Like there's no, no there's no reason to start making a difference between one directing attack means, when you're talking in the context of war crimes or crimes against humanity. Of course, we know that uh, the underlying element of crime against humanity is different in the sense of you're talking about widespread more systematic attack against the civilian population. So it's got contact-specific orientation to it. And that's in my view, uh the, the main distinction in it is not confined only to war times. Right. It operates both in time and in war. Whereas the war crimes article eight operates only in the context of war. Conflict and then the nexus requirements. Right. The conduct has to be connected to the ongoing um, conflict. It has to have an orientation towards you know the side who's doing it in their military strategy and operation that sort of thing. So you have that those nexus requirements there. But beyond that, right? The actual conduct itself. I see no reason to you know start reading. Directing a differently from directing a part uh, in another
0: context. Right. I mean, I think strangers to the Rome Statute and to this entire debate would intuitively think that it's, of course, problematic to suggest that the same term appearing in different places of the same treaty or statute should be given different meanings. Like that is just problematic from a, a legal standpoint. But I guess part of the argument that gives rise to this criticism is that the Rome Statute is really just an enforcement mechanism, it's not a source of law. That it is supposed to be simply implementing other legal regimes, in this case IHL for the most part, but also the legal regime for crimes against humanity, and that it's not an independent source of law, and it certainly shouldn't be Reinterpreted or interpreted so as to create new law that the state parties to the treaty, that is the Rome Statute, didn't consent to. We're looking at it from that perspective. Is there anything to this argument that well, you can't be defining a term that is essentially from the legal regime of crimes against humanity the same way as defining the term under IHL from the Geneva Conventions, for example? I do no, not accept at
1: all that the Rome Statute is only. The- about the enforcement and does not create law uh, no, that that's not correct at all some would say that that argument right there you can see it kneecapping capping the aggression provisions of the Rome statute right and that exposes right there the floor in that argument there are many provisions in the Rome statute that uh, you don't find squarely in existing, you know, international law parties, until then. Yes, there are many of them uh, which restate existing law. And to that extent, we begin to get into a debate whether uh, those restatements uh, you know, uh, begin to amount to customary international law, even for states that have not ratified the Rome Statute, in the sense that you have know, states repeating. Uh, the same provisions in different instruments. Now we see the same thing in the Rome Statute. So, yes, there are some provisions in the Rome Statute that uh, may, um, you now repeats existing regimes. But the Rome Statute is also a source of international law, specifically so for those states who have consented to it. And when we're interpreting the Rome Statute, we have to understand. Uh, things in that way. Uh, where if we're interpreting the rules that we are interpreting regime that exists for the states who've consented to it. Now, if, as I say, we have other um, reasons to argue customer international law, we get to that bridge or we
0: Right. Well listen, we could we could spend at least another hour talking just about this case. Yes. Uh, but I've already taken a great deal of your time, but perhaps before we wrap up the discussion of the case, maybe we can just sort of zoom back out and I can ask for your thoughts uh, on whether you are, in fact, optimistic as you step down from the court on the future evolution of IHL, international criminal law, through the jurisprudence of the ICC.
1: Uh, yes, I am optimistic. Well, of course, you yes, will say that, uh, yes, I do. We have to uh, recognize that we have no choice as the current cohort of international lawyers as well as members of the diplomatic community, policy makers of our generation. Do no choice but to keep supporting this court, we have no choice because there's uh, that song that like you never know what you've got until it's gone. Right. What you don't have, you're pining for. But when you get it for a little while, you'll start taking things for granted. And that is where we are right. with the Rome started with the ICC. But if we look around and consider that the ICC was created and and most improbable window of opportunity in international affairs, which window of opportunity is gone, as we speak. It begins to dawn upon us, what this thing is. Uh, it means. He was created after the end of the Cold War, and that was a wish that started in 1919. didn't come to fruition until 1998, because the East and West decided to get along finally. Cold War ended 1989, was. There was a fresh, you know, if we could call it spring, now we like to speak of Arab Spring and all that. There was a sudden spring in the air after the, you know, the march of the Cold War, Nelson Mandela. Right. released from prison the fall of the Berlin Wall, and with the
0: great optimism
1: right. that enabled the leaders of the East and West, all right, let's put our, try and put our differences behind us try and do something different for humanity, and then tried to do that, created the International Criminal Tribunal for, for Yugoslavia and Rwanda, and use that opportunity also, while, while we're at it, let's revive that permanent International Criminal Court project, stored along the way, and they quickly did uh, and created the code. Now, so we have the court. If you look at what's happening in the world today, where the east and the west seem certainly Russia, not east and west, uh, the Russia and the leader of the, of the west, the US, seem to be back to their old, you know, what they're familiar with. It <laughs> comes Difficult to imagine another project of this kind taking off in future, right? And I cannot stress this strongly enough. So it just has to work. There's nothing wrong with people to ask questions about. Can we improve on the projects? Those are questions that we ask the judicial system in every country. We ask that question of the Canadian judicial system or the US, the American judicial system, the UK judicial system, Japan, Ireland, the Dutch. There's nothing wrong with asking the same question of the ICC. Ask the ICJ, get out of the question again from time to time. But the Southwest Africa people takes, you know, the, the kind of fiasco that resorted from that. So Something wrong with those questions about the court, but it's really uh, fortunate if people keep on dwelling on this question with this thing to or not. I don't think we need to do that. It, it just has to do. Let's keep working to improve it.
0: Right. Well, that's a great note to end on. But before I let you go, I'm going to ask if you have three books, articles, three writings that you think would be of interest, perhaps relating to the ICC, but not necessarily? Well, that's that's a tricky question that, that's bound to get me into trouble if I answer it in relation
1: <laughs> to the work of lawyers. I have a lot of friends who have written books and articles who are lawyers. So I cannot then name any three of them without getting into trouble with the Right? So I will stay away from lawyers. How about that? That sounds yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. But of all these, let me go to the work of other professionals uh, three three works over the years that have really one of two of them much earlier, and the third one much more recent, but still in the same ballpark. Have given me inspiration or motivated me in how I see the world and the work we do. The books of Stanley Milcom's book, obedience to authority, nineteen sixty-three.
0: Wow, interesting.
1: Right. And Hannah Arendt's book again on the same year, 1963, right? I command in Jerusalem. Right. Right. And the third one is more recent, uh, published in 2017, I believe, by a book by uh, Professor uh, Timothy Snyder of here University, right? A book titled On Tyranny yes. 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. So those are three books that give me, you know, inspire me in my attitude towards my work and international law. Stanley Milgram basically tells us how easy it is for people to do evil without being designed to be evil people. That's right. You feel that there's somebody else who's making you do it, and whom you are bowing to, or respecting, or yielding to their wish, either declared wish or undeclared wish. Like you're reading them, all right, this is what they like, this is what I think they want me to do, and they want me to do evil, and I do it. There's a lot of that sort of thing that goes on at different levels, different levels, right? And of course, how it is when it comes to what Eichmann did, Right. And there some that takes the other book. Yes, I was made to do it. I just, just um, this boring bureaucrat doing my job. So that is an Aaron's second book, The Banality of Evil. Again, is it that folks can do awful things without necessarily intending it? It makes us say, "Let's be on the watch out, guard against that." Not only in what others do, but in what we ourselves do, it can be as small as you are in the office, and a boss comes and wants you to, you know, thank somebody who's your own subordinate, your middle manager, and because this boss just decides this is what needs to happen, that's And then you go, I want to be the boss. All right. So we feed the sheep to the wolf. They say, no. And it happens in international uh, organizations. So that's one thing. So uh, those two books impress me. Of course, Professor Schneider's book on tyranny has its own specific objective. Again, let's not think that what happened in uh, Nazi Germany. Could not happen in the United States. Yes, exactly the same thing can happen there. And it's for the most liberal societies if you have the wrong person turn up to want to reprise those conducts, whether or not they meant it, or right. whether they're doing what uh, people who are in that mindset feel they need to do to get that way. So these are three books
0: that impress me much. Well. Judge Iwo Suji, thank you so much for your time today, for your insights, and thank you for your service on the court and for your, the service that you've provided to the world. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jab: the Laws of War podcast. Again, if you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact info is on the website, which is at jibjabpodcast.com. You can also find links to the material discussed today and all the reading recommendations today on the website. And if you're enjoying the podcast or finding it helpful, please do spread the word, share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your blog posts or other writing. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students all about it. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at, at JibJabPodcast for updates on the coming episodes and other discussion. This podcast is produced by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine and used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, stay safe, be well.